Food and drink. Food and drink. The gospel speaks clearly of these two things, food and drink. And we know that you can go a lot longer without eating than you can without drinking. Yet immediately, going without food seems to pain us, while if you go without drink for several hours, and maybe even close to a day, it doesn't seem to affect you until it just hits. And so I want to talk about drink first and then food presented in the gospel and in the first reading, because God so desperately desires to give us drink and food, but in the readings we see our refusal to partake of them. So in the first reading, Moses and the Israelites are thirsty. They are now going through the desert after they have fleed Egypt. And because they've been in the desert all this time, they don't have anything to drink. Everything seems fine until suddenly their thirst hits them and they complain. And what God does is that he has Moses strike the rock for water. So they complain and are not able then to partake of the thirst until later. The second way in which man refuses this thirst in the gospel with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman refuses the drink in two ways. First, she asks Jesus, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. So the Israelites complain. The Samaritan woman says, I have nothing in common with you, Jesus. I have nothing in common with you, God. And because of that, How can you ask me for a drink? And then the third is right whenever she becomes curious about this drink, then Jesus calls out her sinfulness. When Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. The woman says, I do not have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying, I do not have a husband for you've had five husbands. And the one that you have now is actually not your husband. So these are the three ways in which at least in the readings show us today, that we refuse the drink which God desires to give us, the drink welling up to eternal life. Through our complaints, through through the idea that I know who you are, God, and I know who I am, and it just doesn't match. It doesn't fit right. And then our sinfulness, the conviction of our sinfulness that we cannot drink. And so I just want to address each of these points. First, how does our complaining keep us from drinking? Whenever the Israelites are in Egypt, in the desert, this is what they say. Why did you ever make us leave Egypt? Was it just to have us die here of thirst with our children and our livestock? If they would have said that when they were no longer thirsty, it would have seemed ridiculous. We left Egypt because we were enslaved. We left Egypt because we weren't being treated with any dignity. We left Egypt because we were dying. We left Egypt because we were having to worship other gods. We weren't even able to worship the Lord God. But what the complaining does, and what complaining does in general, is that it takes everything that we have, everything that we see about reality, and it just focuses in on this one little problem. And seeing this one little problem that can't be solved, right? Why did you ever make us leave Egypt? We're going to die of thirst. 
And the way that God remedies that is that he says, hold in your hand as you go the staff with which you struck the river. The staff with which Moses struck the river. This is the same staff that Moses turns into a serpent in front of Pharaoh. It's the same staff that Moses strikes the river to turn the Nile into blood. It's the same staff that Moses strikes the Red Sea so they can split it. What is happening here is God zooms out of the complaint to show, I have been present with you in all of these things. Why do you doubt? He asks of us then to remember and to give thanks. To remember what he has done and to give thanks for it. And with that staff, he strikes the rock, which is the stony heart of humanity. And so in the staff that we have of mass, we give thanks and we remember. We do this in a remembrance of him and we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. The second point, how do we come over this perceived incompatibility that we have with God? We understand who God is. But then we say, look, I know what the gospel is. I know what the church teaches. But I know who I am. I know my family of origin. I know what my interests are. I know what my habits are. I know what my doubts about the faith are. God, this is who I am. This is who you are in your churches. How can you, a Jew, give me, a Samaritan, something to drink? Well, the way that God answers the question is that he doesn't answer each little objection that we have towards him. Instead, what Jesus says is that everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the waters that I shall give will never thirst. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And at that moment, the Samaritan woman never brings up again that she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. doesn't bring up the perceived incompatibility between herself and God. She says, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come, come or have to keep coming here to draw water. God cuts through all of the nonsense and all the excuses that we give to him. And he offers the promise of eternal satisfaction in him. Water so that we will never become thirsty. And immediately upon this promise, what the Samaritan woman calls to mind, it's not all of her objections that she has to Jesus, but the fact that she has to go out day after day, in the middle of the day, when it's hot, in the middle of the day, when she's alone because, she's just, because she is ashamed, she recognizes how futile her attempts at, at satisfying herself are. She recognizes that all of her, de- all of her ideas, of everything that she's done, um, and everything that she pursues, has just led to dissatisfaction. And so she is drawn in by the promise of eternal life, and that she will never thirst again. We need to be reminded of this, that a lot of our intellectual, emotional, or relational objections, whatever they might be that we hold before God, They don't stand true once God offers us to never thirst again. And that if we recognize how miserable we are in trying to to satisfy ourselves apart from him, 
Then we will say to the Samaritan woman, give me this water so they may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. But then the third point is that right whenever it seems like the Samaritan woman is going to get this water, then Jesus says, well, where's your husband? In other words, Jesus says, show me your sins. Because Jesus knows that she is with someone who is not her husband now and that she's been married to five other people before this. And she balks at that question. She again kind of says, well, we worship on this mountain. You worship in Jerusalem. We worship two different ways. We're just incompatible. It's different. We don't match up, me and you. But what Jesus does is that after telling her that he knows everything about her, he still offers her the water. And because she knows that he knows, she says, this is the savior of the world because he told me everything that I have done. That we recognize that if God is going to satisfy us, then he has to know not only the best parts of us, but the dark corners of our mind and of our heart. He knows all of it. He desires to satisfy totally. And this happens primarily in prayer, in which this thirst is satiated in prayer. But that's only addressing water. There is, in this episode of The Woman at the Well, there is another thing, and that is food. This food. And again, we can go without food for long stretches of time. And without the spiritual food that uh, we'll talk about in a second, um, we, like many Catholics, never eat of it or never strive to eat of it. In fact, we know our thirst hits us at times whenever we know that we have to be reconciled, whenever a guilty conscience hits, say, you know what, I have to go to confession. Or a guilty conscience hits, saying, you know what, I have to get my life in order. I have to start praying again. You know what, I have to avoid sin. All these ways in which we satisfy our thirst. But we don't try to satisfy our hunger enough. And so what is this food? I'm not just going to simply say that it's the Eucharist, because this is not what Christ alludes to in this gospel. Christ says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me, and to finish his work. I'm going to backtrack a little bit in this gospel. It's not an insignificant detail that the gospel of John says, Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. We almost never see Jesus tired in the gospels. Why would it say that? Well, because he is tired, and he had a long journey ahead of him. And so what does he do to refresh himself, and what do we do to refresh ourselves? A lot of times when we are tired, the food that we eat is simply pleasure, it's escapism, it's uh, distraction, whatever it might be. That is the food with which we eat. A lot of translations say, Jesus said to them, my meat is to do the will of the one who sent me. Not like my vegetables. You know what I mean? It's not like I have to reluctantly do the will of the Father. You know, it's not like, yeah, you have to pinch your nose and then just do the will of the Father. No, my meat 
the very thing that is my nourishment, the thing that will bring me out of this fatigue, the thing that will give me direction, is to do the will of the one who sent me. We oftentimes live starving spiritually because we are not convicted that we can do the will of the one who sent us, that we cannot do the will of the Father, or deeper, that the Father cannot be pleased. We oftentimes live as people who can only be satiated in our thirst. That is, we're hit with a desire for thirst. We come to confession, we start praying again, but we have a mentality that the best thing that can happen to me is that I just not fall into sin. That's the best thing that I can do. Just not be guilty. And that is a lie. It's a lie, for instance, like the, you know, like if we joke, like for instance, like, you know, the way that I want to die is to go to confession uh, right there and then boom, like, you know, get hit by, get hit by a train on the way out of church. You know what I mean? Because that's when I'll have no sin. I'll go straight to heaven. But there is a big difference between that kind of person, the person who maybe dies with a deathbed conversion, not after going to church for 50 years, and St. Mother Teresa, who throughout her life did the will of the Father. For her, her food was to do the will of the one who sent her. Because she is in a relationship with God very much like a son to a father instead of someone who is in a relationship with God, someone who is in debt to a banker. Two very different kind of relationships, and we oftentimes treat God like he's our banker and we're just in debt to him. The only thing that I could do is just not be in the red. Hopefully I am not indebted to God. Hopefully I do not sin. But there's a deep-seated conviction that we have to address. The conviction that we have to address is that we cannot be pleasing to the Father. But for Christ, the food that he eats is to do the will of the one who sent him, is to do meritorious good works, to do the things that I should do within my state of life, as well as having a preferential option for those who are poor where Christ is present, doing all of that and offering it to the Father and not fleeing from it. These are the ways in which the Lord desires us to eat and drink to drink of his presence in prayer, to remove the obstacles of complaining, the obstacles of our convictions that he cannot satisfy, and to remove the obstacles of our sins, and that we can find real significance and purpose in doing his will and being convicted that we can actually please him with our lives.